If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for March 26th. 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this program where we talk about the news of the week and the events of my often bizarre life and where we provide you with a full two-hour oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. And boy, do we have an hour scheduled for you. So sit back, relax, and prepare to hear something you've never heard before, because in just moments, We're going to be hearing the first ever interview with a man who is central to the entire so-called Penn State scandal, a former Federal Investigative Services special agent who investigated the entire so-called Penn State scandal before anyone else did and found, guess what? There was no scandal. There was no cover-up. And the reason why we're doing this this week is because this week, had the trial of former Penn State President Graham Spanier, which resulted in one conviction. The prosecution went for three. Actually, they started long ago with many more than that. But in the end, now, six years later, they got one conviction on a misdemeanor for child endangerment. This was a trial that I attended in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So it's been a very, very busy week for me. If you know anything about me, you know that I have been embroiled in this case far more deeply than I ever should have gotten. I have a website which has more information about this case than you can find anywhere else. More of the truth, that's for sure. The website is framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com. And before we get to our guest, John Snedden, who is a former special agent, as I mentioned, who investigated all of this for the federal government and put out a report that I released exclusively a couple weeks ago, I want to give some backdrop and tell you what happened at the trial and how those verdicts came about to give you some context for John Stedden's interview, which, again, is going to be the first that he's ever done in any sort of public way about all of this. I've mentioned John Stedden before because, if you recall, if you're a fan of this podcast, you know that we were scheduled to interview John Stedden before the Graham Spanier trial. And that didn't happen. The reason why that didn't happen was because John was told by Graham Spanier's attorneys that 
he was on the witness list and that they really were regarding him as the star witness for this trial, which took place this week, and that they were concerned that if he did any interviews before the trial, that this might somehow, I guess, I'm interpreting from what they uh, said secondhand, that, that somehow this would, might harm his credibility or that somehow maybe the judge would look uh, dimly upon this, even though there's no sort of ga- there was no sort of gag order in the case. But they were being very, 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 very conservative. And when Graham Spanier, who I've gotten to know exceedingly well over the last five years, having spoken to him dozens of times for many hours, met with him, uh, I think very highly of him as a person, positive he's not guilty of any of these charges, positive he had no knowledge that Jerry Sandusky even might have been a pedophile and certainly did nothing to cover up any information that he was. When Graham told me that his lawyers had decided that we weren't going to be able to talk to John as as had been scheduled, I was furious. And as anyone who knows me knows, when I'm furious, it's rarely difficult for me to hide that. And uh, Graham and I got into quite a fight, although it was mostly a one-sided affair with me going into a profanity-laced tirade uh, about this decision. And, you know, I'm sure that Graham, because I never even gave him really much of a chance to talk, I'm sure that Graham understandably misinterpreted why I was as angry as I was. While I wanted John to do the interview and it would have been good for the podcast, it had been a good story and I think we would have gotten some news coverage for it before the trial. That really wasn't my motivation. What was really upsetting me was this was a sign to me that his defense team was not prepared to do proper battle. And that's what really pissed me off and scared me because I'm like, okay, because my brain doesn't function well in a lot of situations. But one thing, for better or for worse, my brain does do well is when given the proper information, I extrapolate very quickly, like a computer, to what the end game is going to be. And so when I was told this, I'm like, oh, crap. Oh, you're going to get convicted because your defense team is a bunch of wussies who are going to curl up into the fetal position and not put on a proper defense. And in fact, I told Graham Spanier this in an email, which I'm sure he was rather startled by. I said... Because Graham, you know, because I patched things up, I apologized for my tirade, and he he was gracious and said, you know, thank you for that. We must win. I understand your frustration. Blah blah blah. I said, Graham, you're going to get convicted because of your basically blind adherence to whatever your attorneys say. And I'm sorry that you're going to get convicted, but you're going to get convicted. And he didn't respond to that, which was very unlike him. Which because I'm sure he was taken aback. I'm like, well, why is Ziegler telling me I'm going to get convicted when he knows I'm innocent? So incredibly long story short, I go to Harrisburg. I take a red-eye flight, a, my second red-eye flight on this case in less than a week, uh, which is, you know, from Los Angeles to the East Coast is not easy. And I get there for the trial, and this was the second day of testimony, and it was a big day because his two former co-defendants, the former Penn State administrators, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, were also testifying that day, and the media was portraying this as, aha, the cover-up has finally been shattered. They were, they're flipping on Graham Spanier. We're going to find out the truth here of how evil Penn State was in covering up for Jerry Sandusky, and I never believed that because I, I, I know what the truth of this case is. I, I know that this whole thing was a big mess. 
But I was curious as to what would happen with, with regard to Tim and Gary's testimony. But I, I'm only going to tell one story before we talk to John Snedden about the trial itself, because this will encapsulate everything you need to know about this entire fiasco over the last six years. So one of the, the, the major charges, the, really the, there are only three, so two of the charges related to the issue of endangering a child. Now, classic for this case, they never told Graham or his attorneys which child he allegedly endangered. And I had prepared Graham Spanier and his defense team that there was really only one person who could testify that they were endangered because of how Penn State handled the so-called Mike McQueary episode. That's the one that you've heard of in the news for the last five years where the former Penn State, uh, then a graduate assistant coach, allegedly saw Jerry Sandusky engaging in some sort of sex act with a boy, which didn't happen, but that's what, that's what McQueary has testified to in numerous contradictory ways. I knew that the only person that they could bring to testify in order to prove that someone had been endangered because they didn't report Sandusky to the state authorities at that time was a guy by the name of Michael Kajak, who is victim number five from the Jerry Sandusky trial. And I prepared Spanier and his attorneys with a full report on Kajak because he was easily refuted. And, and by the way, not from the standpoint of being an accuser or a victim. I fully understand the politics that you can't in this case, because it's so damn toxic. You can't even remotely question whether these magic accusers are real. But the key to Kajak was the date that he gave because the prosecutors desperately needed an accuser to give them a date after the McQuarrie episode, because then they've got child endangerment. Aha. Aha. Because you didn't act. This child was abused. Now, the McQuarrie episode, although he got the month and the date and the year wrong in his first testimony, which to me is the key to the whole case. McQuarrie's episode occurs in February, uh, February 9th to be exact, of 2001. So they needed a date after that. So exactly as I predicted, they bring Michael K. Jack to the stand. And boy, this was a show. Boy, this was a dog and pony show. I've never seen anything like this. We're, we're seated in the courtroom before K-Jack uh, comes out. The sheriff gives everyone a speech saying, uh, if any recording is done of this, you're going to jail for six months. We brought in extra security. This is, you know, w- this is an, a special witness. We can't have anything go wrong here. And I'm like, wow. Boy, oh boy. And then, then... They bring Kajak out before the jury comes in, which is unusual. They, they tell everyone he's been sworn in in the judge's chambers so that we don't know what his name is, which is highly unusual. I can't find anybody, lawyers, anybody who's ever heard of a situation like this prior. Even at the Sandusky trial, they gave their actual names and they testified. But this guy was referred to as simply as John Doe. So they bring John Doe out and they place, the prosecutor places Kleenex next to the witness stand for this guy who's a 27-year-old male. I'm like, wow. I mean, they they might as well have rolled out a red carpet and thrown rose petals in his path. Uh, I mean, you could almost see the force field around him. Uh, 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 So no no one was going to puncture this force field of mythology 
around this guy. So they they bring the jury in and he gets asked a couple of questions and he's perfectly fine. His, you know, he's speaking just like I am to you and seems like he's in a pretty good mood. How old are you? How did you get involved in the Second Mile charity, which was Jerry Sandusky's charity? And um, and then all of a sudden, were you ever sexually abused? And instantaneously, on the drop of a hat, he goes, yes! And then the next question, were you, who were you abused by? Jerry Sandusky! That's it. No details, no nothing. Just yes and Jerry Sandusky, instant tears, which is not the way a 27-year-old man would cry. Anybody who's ever been a 27-year-old man knows that that's ridiculous. Uh, but for regardless of the fact that he clearly is telling a story about Jerry Sandusky for which he got paid millions of dollars, the key issue here is the date. So they then ask him, when did this happen? And he says, summer of 2002. Now, in any other case... <laughs> The date you would give would actually have a month and an actual number attached to it and maybe even a time of day. But no, no, no. Summer of 2002 in this case, man, that is like hitting on a dartboard. Wow, that is awesome. You you gave us exactly what we wanted. And they said, so how do you know? And he says, because I'll never forget 9-11 and I know it happened after 9-11, and I know what happened in the summer. Now, again, in a rational world, you should know exactly when you were sexually abused. But, okay, fine. So you know this happened after 9-11. Interesting problem, though, is that just as I had prepped uh, Spaniard's lawyers, this was the third completely different version of his date that he has given under oath. The first was, into a grand jury, he said this happened when he was eight years old, which would have been 1998. By the way, he also importantly said it was the first time he'd ever met Sandusky when this happened. That's incredibly important. If that story is true, then he's absolutely lying about the date, and I'll prove it in a second. So his first testimony is eight years old, first time I met Sandusky in a Penn State shower. He showered me up. By the way, not that this matters because the the prosecution wouldn't tell the jury this, but no indication that he had been raped. This was not even an allegation of a sex act, but they let the jury pretend that that that's what it was. Because when you hear Jerry Sandusky's sexual abuse, you automatically presume the absolute worst. So they don't get into the details of that, but I'm not even worried about that. I'm worried about only the date. The date is what matters here. So long story short, his first story is eight years old. His story at Jerry's trial suddenly changes. Four years. Actually, worse than that. It's either three or four years. I can't even interpret his testimony to know for sure because at one point he says 2001. Another point he says 2002. Interestingly, in his testimony this week in the Spanish trial, he also says 2001 by accident at one point. And then he changes it. No, no, I mean after 9-11, 2002. But here's how we know 100% for sure that he's lying about the date. The prosecution showed a picture of him and Jerry together, right? (laughs) They actually asked him, how old were you in this photograph? He says, I was about 10, 11 years old. Well, right there, we know he's lying about the story because he's 10 or 11 years old before the summer of 2002, all right? Not only that, We know when that photo was taken 
because that photo was in Jerry Sandusky's book, Touched. The book came out in January of 2000. So if this really was the first time he ever met Jerry, it has to have happened before January of 2000, which is before the so-called McQuarrie episode, which means he's irrelevant to this case, completely irrelevant. So I'm thinking, all right, I know the Spaniard attorneys aren't going to destroy him as a victim because that would be politically incorrect. We're not allowed to do that. But surely they're going to use my information that I gave them to at least raise some doubt about the date. So the, the prosecution ends their questioning. Judge says to the defense, the witness is yours. And they say, we have no questions, Your Honor. Now, it's a darn good thing they don't allow guns into courtrooms because at that point I would have blown my brains out. I, my head hit the wood, you know, the wooden seat in front of me. And uh, I, 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 at that point, I, I, had I not had a pregnant wife at home and had I not been wearing a press credential for Mediate Law News, meaning that, you know, my employers might have gotten upset with me. Had those two things not been the case, I would have caused a mistrial on my own at that moment by screaming out in court that this is bull crap. And at that point, I knew that Grant Spanier would be convicted. And I told everyone, I told everyone that was there, Franco Harris, NFL great who was there, largely because of my urgings. And, and that, by the way, was a whole controversy. That's how wussified the Spanier attorneys were. They didn't even want Graham, uh, they didn't even want Franco Harris there. How do you not want Franco Harris sitting behind you on, uh, on the defense side of the courtroom? Uh, insanity. But. He was there. I told Frank, Franco, this, he's going to get... Franco thought, no, 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 no. Franco's Mr. Optimism, of course. No, no, no. There's no case here. There's no facts here. This is... We're, we got this. This is good. Uh, members of the Penn State board were there. They all thought, oh, no, no. They didn't lay a glove on us. The, he's going He's going to be uh, found not guilty. Well, sure enough, uh, he was found not guilty on the most important charges. Don't tell the media that because they think, they think this was a vindication for them. He was found not guilty on conspiracy, so there's no cover-up. He was found not guilty on the worst child endangerment charge, so there's no felonies. He was found guilty on one misdemeanor, which you would think would be a massive defeat for the prosecution and the media in this case. But no, we're living in la-la land here. We're living in an upside-down universe. So not being convicted of something now is actually being convicted of something. Effectively, this was like OJ going on trial for double murder and being convicted of a DUI. That's effectively what happened here. And somehow the headlines being OJ convicted in murder case, which, of course, unfortunately didn't happen. But that's another story for another day. All right. So with that all being said, we now have Graham Spanier and his two former co-defendants, former Penn State administrators, all having been convicted of child endangerment. The media thinks this means there was a cover-up in this case. I know there wasn't. There's one man who investigated this more fully than anybody else did. He did so for the federal government way before Louis Free came out with his famous Free Report. He's a guy by the name of John Snedden, and at the time of his report that he did for the federal government in order to see whether or not Graham Spanier's top-secret security clearance should be renewed— he was a Federal Investigative Services special agent, and I released his report that he did 110 pages on all of this a couple of weeks ago, 
And now, finally, we're able to talk to him so he can do his very first interview about this entire case publicly. John Snedden, welcome to the podcast. Uh, John, uh, a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. All right, before we get to your conclusions about what you found after your six-month investigation in the Grand Spaniard in order to determine whether or not his top-secret government security clearance should be renewed, give us a sense of what your job was at the time that you embarked on this investigation. Um, well, I mean, you know, the the entire uh, process is to determine a person's uh, suitability to have access to national security information or continued access to national security information, depending upon what the circumstances were that that uh, trigger the investigation. Um, and essentially what you do is you go in and um, you identify any issues, any potential issues, and then you uh, see them to the end. Um to determine exactly what the circumstances were surrounding those issues. And what was your job um, technically? You were a Federal Investigative Services Special Agent, right? Right, correct. What, what does that mean? Um, you know, it's, a, it's a, uh, a branch of the federal government that is responsible specifically for um, determining uh, people's suitability to have access to national security information. And how long had, um, you, how long had, you, had you been working in that job at this, at this time uh, back in 2012? Um, about seven years. And seven prior years. and prior to that, what, what did you have done in this area? Well, I spent a, a greater part of my uh, uh, natural life uh, as a uh, NCIS special agent, uh, criminal investigator, um, where I uh, investigated uh, felony criminal offenses, major criminal offenses, and uh, foreign counterintelligence matters um, for NCIS. All right, so after this story breaks in November of 2011 and Grant Spanier is relieved of his duties as president of Penn State, understandably, the federal government decides, hey, this guy's got a top-secret security clearance. By the way, a very high top-level security clearance. Yes, yes. And by the way, just for the purposes of layman, explain what his security clearance was and why it was so high. Well, it's a sensitive compartment of information, a clearance, which, uh, you know, is as high as you can get. Um, and the, the documentation that's in the uh, report that you were able to release um, identifies that. And it really is, you know, you have, a, you know, you have various uh, classifications uh, from confidential to secret to top secret. And then you have uh, above top secret that... Uh, um, just as an example, as, as he has a uh, uh, sensitive compartment and information, right. which is uh, very significant, okay. very significant. So, so the federal government, understandably, says, wait a minute, we should decide, you know, we've got this massive story going on. We should look into Graham Spanier and determine, should his top-level uh, security clearance be revoked? Should it be renewed? And you get tasked with investigating that, which you've, I'm sure, done many, many times before. And after right. a six-month investigation where you speak to everybody that would be involved in any sort of Penn State cover-up had it occurred in the Sandusky matter, what was your conclusion? Well, the, the conclusion of my investigation would be that there was, one, no cover-up. Two, no conspiracy. And uh, there was nothing to cover up. So, um, you know, I, I don't know how more definitive you can get. You have somebody that, you have somebody that, uh, um, you know, does an investigation for six months, uh, interviews all the uh, 
pertinent people. Um, that information is subsequently um, forwarded to uh, uh, an adjudicator who doesn't know anybody in the uh, uh, in that you know um, interview process um, who makes an independent decision for the purposes of the uh, of the clearance. So I mean it's it was a very definitive. If uh, if people had the time, you know, if you have if you had an hour and a cup of coffee and you sat down and you read that report, um, I think it would be pretty clear to you uh, what the circumstances were. And so after your your finding, no conspiracy, no cover up, nothing to cover up, no problems with Graham Spanier. What happened with his security clearance? And it was renewed. <laughs> so we have a the federal government who has investigated this fully through you, determining that Graham Spanier is worthy of not only uh, having his security clearance, but having it renewed at the highest possible levels. Uh, did you think that when you that, that report was filed and that conclusion was reached, that this would end this controversy over whether there was a cover-up at Penn State? Well, again, if, if you look through the report, you'll see that uh, um, uh, there's an indication of uh, – you know, some degree of political, you know, maneuvering there with a view towards, uh, you know, having this whole thing come to the conclusion that it has. What do you so, mean? What uh, do you mean by that? What do you mean by that political persuasion? Well, you know, it, it was pretty clear when you when you go through the report that that, uh, you know, you've got a circumstance where um, the, the the governor um, took an active role, had, had not previously done so until uh, this, as part of the uh, Board of Trustees, had not been uh, active on it until this occurred. Um, uh, he was known to have had a, uh, a major problem with uh, uh, Dr. Spanier's uh, fight for uh, uh, financing for, uh, for Penn State. And uh, I think if you read the... Uh, the interviews, you'll see um, that uh, he was uh, uh, certainly appeared to be a, a contributing factor to a, right. a, a political uh, problem there. Okay, so I want to talk about all the politics of this and, and the report itself and, and, and the politics surrounding the report because I think they're significant to this story too. But let's go back to, to your investigation itself and work from there. So <clears throat> when I say you interviewed everybody, I mean you really interviewed everybody – at Penn State, at a time when no one was talking, uh, who would have exactly right when no one was talking, who would have been either directly or indirectly involved in a cover-up of Jerry Sandusky had such a thing occurred. And I'm talking about the uh, you talked under oath to Graham Spanier, you spoke to yes. uh, the Tim Curley and, and Gary Schultz, who at the time were under indictment and spoke to nobody, right? Correct. You're the Correct. only person who spoke to them, other than presuming they're lawyers, uh, in an extensive way about this, uh, from the time of their indictment to the time of the Spaniard trial, uh, which uh, just took place where they testified. And you also spoke to the current Penn State president. You spoke to several key members of the Board of Trustees, the legal counsel at Penn State, and a whole bunch of other people. And what what would you say were the most important things that you found, or more importantly, that you didn't find uh, in your investigation. Well, I, again, I you know I would say that uh, I did not find 
um, any indication of any cover-up, um, any indication of any uh, conspiracy, or anything to to cover up. Um, you know, I, I think the uh, uh, interview of uh, Cynthia Baldwin, um, if people were to read that, um, they she was would the see Penn, she was the, she was the Penn State counsel at the time uh, of this general counsel, right. correct? I mean, uh, they would certainly see that her uh, um, the information that she provided to me was inconsistent, apparently, with what she had provided to the state, um, and uh, you know that she was uh, essentially uh, you know representing them when she said she wasn't representing them. So, all right, let's get let's um, talk let's talk about the three key people here. Spanier, Curley, and Schultz. So Spanier, we just I just discussed this week. He got convicted on a misdemeanor child endangerment. The media portrayed that as he was convicted in a cover-up. Tell me about your interview with him under oath and what your analysis of him as a witness was. Um, uh, Dr. Spanier was very forthcoming. He wanted to uh, get everything out. Um. I think he certainly saw it as a vehicle where he could, you know, explain um, what he thought uh, was causing this. And um, he, uh, he, all I can tell you, he was very forthcoming the entire um, interview, which uh, I think was over eight hours. So Hold on a second. Was, you, you as a special agent of the Federal Investigative Services interviewed Grand Spanier for over eight hours and found no signs of deception, conspiracy, or cover-up? No. Uh, now, wait a minute. Isn't it possible that he just duped you? No. Why not? Why do we no. know that he didn't dupe well, you? Uh, uh, well, I can tell you, I mean, you know, I've, uh, I've had uh, significant cases uh, for uh, the greater part of my life that I've worked on. Um, and I can, uh, uh, you know, pretty well um, determine which way we're going. <laughs> on an interview. And uh the the important thing is is that he had, you know, he had uh all of his in, all of his information uh out there ready to go. Um wanted to talk about it. Um it was not there was no pulling of teeth. You know, he uh he seriously wanted to get to the to the heart of the of the uh you know, situation. And uh he certainly knew what was on the line. Um, you know, I can't think of a, uh, more significant, uh, circumstance than, uh, you know, putting the, uh, United States of America at risk. And, uh, certainly he was, uh, again, very forthcoming, um, answered every question, um, was clear about what he was saying and, uh, and he, ex- explained what he thought, what the whole purpose, uh, what the reasoning was that, uh, brought that to uh, a head. And his reasoning yeah. was that this was a political vendetta that uh, that was provoked by the fight that he had gotten into with the governor over education funding that previous spring. Is that a fair Absolute, assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Now, uh, and, that, and I, I agree that that is part of numerous perfect storms that hit all at once in November of 2011 uh, in this particular case, but yes, l- yeah. let's talk about. So, and it's important to point out every other person you interviewed, uh, several of whom did not have a self-interest to come to this conclusion because they had fired Graham Spanier. Uh, agreed, yes, agreed that Graham Spanier should have his security clearance 
renewed because there was no question about his integrity. Is that is that accurate? That is correct. Absolutely. Everybody, every one of them, uh, advised that they they knew of nothing in uh, um, Dr. Spanier's background, lifestyle, or conduct that would make him susceptible to any possible coercion, pressure, duress, or blackmail. Or right. any uh, adverse uh, information All whatsoever. Right, let's, let's talk about specifically Tim Curley, former athletic director at Penn State, and Gary Schultz, former senior, senior vice president at Penn State, his former co-defendants who just before uh, Graham Spanier's trial took a plea deal for a misdemeanor child endangerment charge, which I believe uh, was very much purely out of fear of a polluted jury pool and not because they thought they had done anything remotely illegal or even wrong. What was your sense of them as far as what they told you, again, at a time where they were under indictment, uh, an indictment that I am convinced. Let me let me back up. Um, do you agree with me, uh, John, based upon everything you know about this case, that Tim Curley and Gary Schultz were indicted along with Jerry Sandusky as part of a strategy by the prosecution to destroy their testimony that could theoretically be very beneficial to Jerry Sandusky? Um, yes. I mean, you know, I, uh, that's certainly a conclusion that you can come to. All right. I mean, uh, having sat down with them for hours, um, I would, uh, I would certainly think that that would be a conclusion you could definitely come to. All right. And let's talk about why you can come to that conclusion based upon your interviews, your extensive interviews with these two guys. Was there any indication you got? that they had ever been given any information by Mike McQueer or anybody else that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile. Well, specifically uh, um, Gary Schultz. I mean, he specifically, if you, again, you've got to read the report. but uh, And it specifically tells you exactly what, uh, what he said. Um, and it was not sexual. There was no, nothing, uh, nothing at all relative to... Uh, a sexual circumstance. So you Nothing. were so you were sure that that both Curley and Schultz, again, this is after the crap is at the fan, after they've been indicted, after Joe Paterno has been fired, I believe, even after Joe Paterno had died, uh, and, but before Jerry Sandusky is actually convicted, you you were told by everything that they told you indicated that they had no evidence whatsoever that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, they they had no information that uh, would make a person uh, believe that. And they also had, uh, is it fair to say that the people that you spoke to, if they had been able to testify in court, say in Sandusky's trial, would have greatly diminished the credibility of Mike McQuarrie's testimony because they inherently contradict him. Is that fair? Um, I, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, uh, again, you got to read that report, but uh, Gary Schultz uh, is pretty clear as to uh, what he was told and what he wasn't told. So, and, uh, uh, you know, what he was told uh, was nothing of a sexual nature. And it's important to point out for people who don't know or have forgotten, because I realize this case is very complex and it's old for a lot of people, but Gary Schultz and Tim Curley were the people who interviewed Mike McQueary uh, and uh, about this after, uh, after McQueary had gone to Joe Paterno and Joe Paterno of course gets hung in all of this. And he was a, a tangential figure. 
uh, at best. I mean, all he did was speak to McQuarrie for 10 minutes and pass McQuarrie up the food chain to uh, his superiors. Was there anything that you found out about Joe Paterno, uh, e- even uh, by accident in your investigation, that would have been uh, e- e- give us any indication of what his role in all of this really was? Well, I think you put your uh, finger on it. I mean, uh, in, in speaking with them, uh, with the, the individuals that I uh, spoke with, uh, his involvement was very minimal in passing it to his um, the people that he reported to. So, um, you know, it would be Tim, uh, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz. Right. So... Um, so, and, so you agree you know, that a, you agree that Joe Paterno got an incredibly bad rap here. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, I think the uh, interviews that I did with the uh, members of the board's board of trustees uh, would be indicative of that. And you can find all of this in the report that I released via Law News, either by googling it or just go to our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com, or probably more directly, Framing Paterno. Uh, dot com, which is also my website. So I'm curious, John Snedden, uh, former uh, Federal Investigative Services Special Agent, when you finished all of this investigation, based upon, I'm sure, what you had seen on television and read in the newspaper, were you surprised that you hadn't found any indication of, of any sort of a cover-up in this case? Um, you know, I, I didn't really... I tried not to pay attention to any of that. You know, I'm focused on you know, uh, what I can learn about Dr. Spanier and, you know, again, whether he, uh, you know, he has a circumstance where he would be, uh, you know, suitable to uh, continue to have access to national security information. I mean, really, I'm trying to zero in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the stuff is kind of tangential, but I can tell you that uh, um, once I did started, start paying attention um, to that part of it, you know, so I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to try to focus on on Dr. Spanier, but uh, my thought was when I completed that was, geez, you know, if people if people read <laughs> knew what these people know, um, you know, heads would explode. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, uh, my God, you know, this is uh, this is this is what the circumstances are. All right, but. Uh, so, so, and I've alluded to this earlier, when you completed this report, did you not think that this was going to end any talk of conspiracy or cover-up in this case? Well, I, I certainly think that uh, if, if the uh, powers to be um, that were making those decisions uh, to try to pursue these guys knew what... Uh, uh, was revealed in my interviews, they certainly would, uh, you know, have to take a really hard look at what they're doing because there's no indication of any of that. Well, let, know, well I, let's talk I, about let's talk about the, the most prominent person that I believe you're referring to, and that is former FBI Director Louis Free, who was paid millions of dollars by the Penn State Board of Trustees to investigate this case. His investigation was going on at the same time Yours was, yet he was unable to talk to a lot of the key people that you were able to talk to. Uh, he certainly never uh, spoke to Tim Curley or Gary Schultz. Uh, he didn't speak to Graham Spanier for eight hours under oath. In fact, he spoke to Graham Spanier 
for a very short period of time, just a couple of days before his report was released. And here's the most amazing thing. And I really am curious what you're going to say about this. So Spanier, by the time he does an interview with Louis Frey, and this is the guy who would end up writing this so-called free report that the media latched onto as, see, 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 we didn't really railroad Joe Paterno. There was a cover-up at Penn State. Spanier, in his interview with Free, tells Free about your report and his security clearance being renewed because it had just happened. Now, as a former FBI director, what should Louis Free or how should Louis Free have responded when being told, oh my gosh, Graham Spanier just got his top secret security clearance renewed? What should what kind of signal should that have sent to a former FBI director? Uh, you know, if he was, uh, well, first of all, he's a political appointee. Correct, he was a political appointee. Right, but as a former so, FBI director, he obviously yeah, understands I, security clearances. So, tell me what he should have, what should have been his reaction to that? Well, you know, uh, certainly to to go back to the report and say, hey. Who was interviewed and what did they say? You know, I mean, this is kind of uh, pertinent to what we're doing. Um, and did he do that? You know, I mean, not that I'm aware of. And was your report mentioned in his report? Oh, no. Was, Absolutely not. Was, it was Grand Spaniard's top secret security clearance mentioned in his report? Not that I'm aware of. Right. So none of it was mentioned. There was no investigation. And in a rational world, correct me if I'm wrong, John, in a rational world, an FBI director learns this, he should put a complete stop to his entire process. If he's, if he's dead set on concluding that this guy, Grand Spanier, and others at Penn State were involved in a massive, nonsensical cover-up of Jerry Sandusky's sex crimes, you at least pause and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Instead, he well, completely ignores it. I, well, I, this is my thing. I think that if your if your goal uh, in any investigation, which it should be, is to determine the facts of the case, period. You know, you determine the facts of the case, and um, you know his circumstance should have been: Hey, we'll be happy to obtain all any and all facts, so they can be determined. You know, so we can e- evaluate what the circumstances are. Um, I can't imagine uh, why. Well, I can't imagine. That. Tell me why. But, why would he do it? But, why but, would he? Why would he ignore your report, John? It doesn't fit the narrative that he's uh, going for. Not only that. Um, not only does it not fit the narrative. So he puts his hand over his ears and over his eyes, and I don't want to hear this. I don't want to see this. He's also got a very strict timetable because the goal here is. The day after the All-Star Baseball game. The slowest day of the year in sports. That's when they're going to announce this. He can't be dilly-dallying around trying to figure out, wait a minute, did the federal government do a report that's better than mine and come to a completely different conclusion? He needs he to. Doesn't, he doesn't do, he, want to do that. He doesn't have time to read a 110-page report. Well, not only that, the, more, <laughs> more importantly than, yeah. than the reading, and it's clear that Free doesn't do a lot of reading, uh, but more important than the, the time it took to read, if if he does, if he has to delay anything to figure out, maybe, maybe I got this wrong, then everything is busted up. And and by the way, 
and I'm the as you know, John, since we've gotten to know each other pretty well, I'm an anti-conspiracy guy because I don't think people are smart enough yeah, to pull off I, conspiracies. But, yes, I understand that. But 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 if you look at the timing of this, if you look at the timing of this, Sandusky gets convicted in the in the late spring, uh, and and Louis Free is keeping very close contact on that, and vice versa. The prosecution and Free are working hand in glove on that whole situation. Free gets the free report out on the day after the All-Star Baseball game. The NCAA comes out a week later just in time for the sanctions to take hold on the coming football season. This yeah. was this was all designed all designed to get it done before the next football season. That was the whole key. So and 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 and, and it's very clear. It's obvious that that's what happened and your report was a fly in the ointment. And Free ignored it, and he still. Yeah, I don't. You know, I just don't understand why. Well, I'm. Mean, you know, I, I, I do understand, but I think your your average human being would want to be able to say why would you ignore more evidence? I mean, you know, either side that it it uh, lands on, why would you ignore it? Well, because That's you want to come appalling. to because you're being paid to come to a previous conclusion by a board who needed an excuse for why they panicked and fired Graham Spanier and Joe Paterno. That's uh, that's uh, the answer. That's, yes. You agree with that? Yes. Okay. So I mean, let me let me let me tell you this much. The federal investigation, I would presume, probably, you know, and in my estimation, probably uh cost the federal government and the taxpayers about uh $50,000 at the most. <laughs> and he and he and he spent uh, eight point three million. Unbelievable. Well, he was paid eight point three million or whatever it ended up being. Well, yeah, I mean, he didn't spend it. Well, whatever yeah, he did to, to come to a conclusion and further proof that he was paid to come to a conclusion and how invested in that conclusion he is. So when Spanier got convicted on Friday of a misdemeanor child endangerment, Louis Free put out a statement. Within out a couple less than a couple of hours of the of the verdict being read, that was so bizarre, so over the top, so vitriolic that news organizations literally didn't publish it at first because they couldn't believe it came from him. What did you make? Yeah. Of, what did you make of his statement? Well, you know, two two different things. One. Um, he may have well have just uh, typed that up and waited for uh, you know the word conviction on something right. to uh, uh, and sent it, or uh, exactly. it's like a preemptive uh, strike to uh, you know uh, divert people's uh, attention from the actual conviction for a misdemeanor. Uh, no cover up, no conspiracy. You know, um, as a diversionary. Uh, effort it was very you trump know, I, I i saw it as trump like i i saw it as donald trump <laughs> i saw it as donald trump reacting to news about russia uh the, in, in a in a rational world those verdicts with with the jury pool as polluted against them as it is the media on the prosecution side they went three for 24 i don't know if you know this john three yes. three yes, three for 24 when it all said and done, with all the things that those three guys were charged against, they got three misdemeanors out of 24 charges. In a rational world, Louis Free is completely discredited. The free, re- yes. the, re- the free report is a joke. And that's why that's- he responded the way that he did. And I agree with you 
that that thing was written. It's a Friday afternoon. That thing is written way before the uh, the verdicts come down, and he just saw conviction. And unfortunately, I've seen numerous headlines, and some of which you've sent me, which by, by yeah. these mainstream media morons who are portraying this as free being vindicated. Uh, which is horrific. I mean, you know, I, uh, you know, your your average person, um, you know, that takes a look at this thing, and uh, if they again, if they read the report, um, they'll see, you know, can that actually happen? I mean, is it possible for it something like that to mushroom into something like this? I mean, I, I, incredible. Well, it's the most remarkable story that I've ever heard of. And, uh, and again, people can find the, the real story at FramingPaterno.com uh, and find your report there as well. But let's, I want to talk about some other key figures in all of this. One of the guys that you had an interesting experience with, because your report became a political hot potato, not just for Louis Free, but it became a hot potato for the prosecution in the Spaniard case as well. And part of that process was a guy by the name of Anthony Sassano, who's a detective who uh, he's kind of like the Forrest Gump of this case. He keeps showing up. <laughs> he keeps showing up everywhere. And I, and I don't think that's coincidental. One of the places he, he ends up taking over the Jerry Sandusky investigation halfway through because it's not going anywhere because they can't find any accusers other than victim number one, Aaron Fisher. And I happen to know that that Sassano was the lead detective on a case that involved Aaron Fisher's uncle, that was prior to this, which is how I think he got involved in all of this. He's a narcotics agent, and somehow he becomes a sex crimes expert. Uh, uh, but, but odd. yeah, very odd. Uh, and, but tell me your experience with Anthony Sassano. Um, you know, I, in October of uh, 2012, um, you know, my, my report had been completed, and I certainly uh, got the impression that uh, he must have learned through somebody um, that there was, in fact, an investigation, because I, I certainly didn't run around telling anybody there was one. Um, and out of the blue, got uh, contacted through unofficial means <laughs> with a view towards me calling him back, um, which was exceptionally odd. Um, you know, if you're... Uh, if you're a law enforcement uh, person and you want to talk to another law enforcement or investigative person, you would certainly use, uh, you know, official channels. I mean, you know, like official telephone number or an official email. But uh, it was uh, an unofficial effort to contact me, and did- which was I found very odd. And what was the nature of the contact uh, that you had with Sasano? Um. He wanted a copy of the report. And did you give him one? Uh, you know, it's not me. It's not mine to give. It's the, uh, you know, at that point, it's the uh, property of the federal government. Um, um, you know, now, of course, it's the property of uh, Dr. Spanier through the uh, Freedom of Information Act. But at that point, right, it was the uh, property of the uh, federal government. Well, how did you interpret? Um, how did you interpret Sasano's interaction with you, John? Um, he was uh, agitated, v- very agitated. 
And why did you think yeah. it was that? What, what, why, what do you think was the motivation behind his agitation? Running out of time to indict uh, Dr. Spanier. So is it your interpretation that the prosecution, they find out about your report uh, in whatever way that they did, and they're determining whether or not to indict Graham Spanier because he was indicted a year after, basically, this all thing hit the, hit the fan. And in, right. in, in trying to make that determination, they find out, oh, my God, the federal government did a full investigation of this and extended his security clearance. We need to find out what's in there because otherwise we might be running into a buzzsaw. Is that a fair yes, assessment? Exa- exactly. So, I, I think that uh, I think that would certainly, uh, you know, lead one to understand why he would be agitated. Okay. And so they were worried. They, they were worried that their case was weak and that you might have the proof that they were full of crap. Well, I certainly think if they made any inquiries at all of anybody that uh, I spoke with, um, they probably would have said, hey, we've already been interviewed by Special Agent Sned. So, you know, then they'd be off to their races and, uh, you know, damage control or figure out what's going on mode. All right. So, so, so that, and that, and that might be, by the way, part of the reason why this takes this case takes so long. Cause I, I, I'm convinced that the prosecution needed a whole series of events to occur to pollute the jury pool for them to even have any chance at all. So, so in the course of the next several years, a lot of things happen, none of which are good, for the people who I believe are innocent in this case because they create the perception of guilt. And finally, after all these, this time, we get to Graham Spanier's trial, which occurred this week, and you're on the witness list. Our interview, scheduled for a couple weeks ago, gets canceled at the last minute, and you travel from New York towards Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to be the star witness at this trial. In fact, I was in the courtroom when the the defense effectively promised you. They referenced you by name. They referenced your report in an effort to try to contradict Gary Schultz on the stand. You had every belief that you were going to be called to the stand and tell tell us what happens next. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, you know, uh, tried to contact the uh, legal team the night before because I was uh, in the immediate area. And, uh, you know, it was a circumstance where they were going to call me back, let me know what's going on. And uh, in the morning, at uh, about 7.30 in the morning, I started calling, trying to find out what's going on. And uh, I subsequently got an email indicating that they uh, chose not to, to use my testimony that day. And then... I uh, sent an email back uh, asking for clarification, like not today or not ever. And uh, they they indicated that they had uh, chosen to go a you know minimalistic route with no <laughs> witnesses. Well, minimalistic meaning they put on no case. They yes, said, exactly. They, they put on no witnesses at all. So this this had nothing to do with them not being confident in you, they just simply decided, you know what? The other side didn't prove their case. We're not going to put any witnesses on. We're going to immediately rest in what I think it, is that a, that's what happened, right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. right. So it had nothing exactly. to do with you. It was no negative on you. My personal opinion about what happened is they decided <laughs> that they, the other side didn't prove their case. It was too risky to put Graham Spanier on the trial on, on the stand, partially because, 
they had gotten some intel that jurors in the Mike McQuarrie civil case hadn't really liked Graham very much. And so they were afraid to put him on the stand and they figured, all right, it'll look better if we put on no case at all rather than put on a partial case and not have Graham testify because if we do that, it's going to make it seem more obvious that Graham hasn't testified. If we put on no case at all, then we're just saying, screw you, you didn't prove your case. Uh, that's my interpretation. I don't know if that's – is that is that your interpretation as well? Yeah. I, you know, the sad part is is that, uh, you know, if I were to have testified, the, uh, all of the interviews that I did would have gone in. And uh, I certainly think that the jury uh, should have heard that. Do, all of that. Do you believe that – All if, of that. Do you believe that if you had testified that there would have been a complete acquittal in this case? I certainly do. I mean, you know, I, you know, t- just take a look at the report. I mean, look at the people that I talk to. You know, uh, read their responses for yourself. I mean, uh, you know, you come to your own conclusion. I certainly think that would be the case. I mean, you, you, uh, there's nothing that you can grab out of that that would be indicative of, you know, what he was uh, found guilty of. So you have no doubt. John Stedden, former special agent for the Federal Investigative Services, who investigated this whole thing for six months and dozens of hours of interviews. You have no doubt that an innocent man was convicted on Friday. That, I, that's what I believe. And what, what, kind of, on, what kind of confidence do you have in that belief? Uh, 100%. I mean, you know, this is, I mean, it's not close is in it? the it's, report. There's, it's, no, it's not close. There's, there's nothing in the report that would be indicative of any of that. Right, now, it's, nothing. it's important to point out, and this has been one of the things that's driven me crazy for a long time, is that this case isn't even close. When you look at the facts, it's not even close. If it was close, I wouldn't have devoted five plus years of my life to it. It's not even close at any level. And, and that's what's so frustrating. Now, I mean, the jury vote on it was uh, zero to twelve on one of the charges, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, yes, I don't get it. Right. I, I, well, I'm insane. It, it is insane. The whole thing. This whole case is insane. So let me just throw a couple things at you that that your critics might uh, hit you with, okay? And I'm sure the prosecution would have had you had you testified. Is it not true? That, for instance, your investigation occurred in early 2012, which is after the events, well after the events and well after the crap hit the fan. But that isn't it possible that some of these witnesses got their memories refreshed by further documentation after that point? Is that not possible? Um, I doubt that. I mean, uh, it was the focus on of everybody. I mean... It was an emotional uh, circumstance for everyone. Right. Um, And, uh, you know, once you cut through the emotion and you get to the facts, I mean, if you had a circumstance like that, um, it doesn't happen every day, (laughs) you would remember it for the rest of your life. Yes. I mean, it's just like if you're in a car accident. You're not in a car accident every day, are you? Right. So you remember everything about that car accident. Right. Um, so this is uh, uh, unbelievable. I mean, you know, I, I, the, whole, the, whole, the whole situation. John, what you just said is so incredibly important. And this has been my mantra for five years. 
if what is alleged to have happened actually happened, everybody would remember it. Everyone would remember exactly where they were. They would not have any problem with dates. They wouldn't give vague uh, time periods, like when, whether it was 2001 or 2002. They would, that, that's, there wouldn't be a question as to whether or not they reported it to the state or not. Everyone would know. And the key to this whole thing is this case, no one got asked about this case until years later, and they're being asked about something that was no big deal. That's why they don't remember. Well, you know, quite frankly, that kind of, uh, that, that kind of uh, you know, speaks to everybody that uh, you hear that uh, people have spoken with. Right. Um, you know, I mean, if it, if it was a, an event that was very traumatic, I mean, everybody would remember that. Exactly. You would remember that, and there would be evidence. If, there would be evidence everywhere at this point. At every, uh, at every absolutely, level. every absolutely. level. There would be no question about it, especially after the media explosion that occurs. Uh, there would there would be O.J. Simpson evidence all over this case. Now, the other I thing. Cer- go ahead. Yeah, I, I certainly think that uh, you know, without a doubt. I mean, you know, if you if you talk to as many people as I had interviewed. Um, and you don't have a single one of them remember anything like that. Right. <laughs> I mean, it didn't that's happen. unbelievable. It didn't happen. Okay, so the other thing people might say is, okay, John Snedden, one of the schools you went to was Penn State. You're clearly just bleeding uh, blue and white, and this is all about you trying to uh, devindicate your, your, one of your alma maters. Is, is that a, what do you say to that accusation? Um, yeah, no. <laughs> um, I, 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 mean, I, can, I can tell you this, just as an example, I am a, uh, a, a Navy vet, a Navy veteran. Um, I went to a school on the GI Bill, and then I became a, you know, civilian special agent uh, criminal investigator for the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. Um, I was uh, able to be exceptionally impartial um, on major criminal offenses, uh, investigation of major criminal offenses, whether or not that person was uh, in the Navy or in the Marine Corps or not. Right. That was your um, job. That was your job. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, you know, the, the whole And this is even, uh, I mean, this is very significant. Those were significant. This is very significant. Right. You're talking about um, a potential risk to national security. Right. You know, I I can't imagine something getting to a a higher level. All right. right. So, John, I know that you were not tasked in any way, shape or form with investigating the crimes of Jerry Sandusky himself. But obviously that was tangentially related to all of this. And I and since you and I have started being in close contact for the last month or so, I have. I've given you a lot of the investigation that I've done on that aspect of this case. Right, right. What is your evaluation of what I have come to with regard to my conclusions and the investigation that I've done on on the Sandusky element of this case? Well, you know, taking into account everything that you've done, which has been uh, um, incredible, um, and working it backwards from what just happened last week, backwards to everything that that i did um i've got to say it it needs to be um examined um thoroughly and it needs to be examined by a you know competent uh law enforcement authority 
a professional, competent law enforcement authority that doesn't uh, um, have any political connections with uh, anybody that might have been on the uh, board of trustees at the time this thing hit the fan. John, have you found anything in my investigation that you you perceive to be faulty or any conclusions that you perceive to be uh, incorrect? Well, I can tell you there's a, uh, a significant amount of, uh, you know, information there that uh, speaks to uh, it not being a credible circumstance. <laughs> I mean... Uh, if you take the totality of it, you got to say, well, what are we looking at? I mean, uh, where, you know, uh, many moons ago, when I was a baby agent and I went to my first crime scene, uh, I had a senior special agent with me, and his statement was, where's the crime? <laughs> and, you know, I, I think that kind of fits this. Where is the crime? I hear you. It's been driving me I mean, crazy. You, know, you 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 run through all the information that you have, and everything that's. Uh, if you go backwards and look at everything, right? You know, it, you need to have an impartial, professional, competent law enforcement entity, uh, investigative entity, look at this whole thing, because uh, you know it's so disjointed, and you don't have. Uh, um, you know, uh, you need to have credible witnesses or find credible witnesses. Um, you know, you, you have to have factual information, um, to make a determination. Right. And, uh, this case has been all about emotion. It's never been about facts, never been about make, logic. Exactly. There you go. Never been about the law, but John, thank you very much for your time, for speaking out publicly for the first time. All the work that you've done on this, being I know how passionate you are that an injustice has been done here, and and your efforts to try to rectify that, and so uh, so thank you for all of that, and uh, and obviously I know you and I are going to keep in touch on this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, going yes. forward. Right. Yes. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Thank right. you. That's uh, John Stedden, former uh, Federal Investigative Services uh, Special Agent. You can see his report at FramingPaterno.com and at uh, Free Speech Broadcasting. Dot com And folks, if that doesn't open your eyes and your mind to what really happened in the so-called Penn State scandal, I don't know what else does. There's not much else I can do. <laughs> I've spent five years of my life on this, and that pretty much encapsulates all of it. But it's really just the tip of the iceberg. And I think the most important thing John discussed there is if you work backwards, if you use your brain and you look at all this, you realize... There's nothing here. And that's the only scenario that makes any sense. Everybody in this case was innocent. This was a myth. This was a hurricane of a panic, to mix some metaphors. This was a witch hunt. All of it. All of it. And again, you can find out more at framingpaterno.com. Uh, next week, uh, please join us for the World According to Zig podcast. Hopefully, we'll have another interesting guest. I'll talk about my 50th birthday coming up this week and a whole lot more. Uh, make sure you share this podcast, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. It's the only way people will likely hear about it uh, uh, other than the other uh, outlets that I have to get the word out. But I really appreciate it if you do that for me. And do yourself also a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and use sheets, listen to this important message 
My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.